Hello, everyone, and welcome to Old Testament in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're picking back up in Genesis, chapters 34 through 36, on our way to Joseph. We have just a couple stops to make, reminding ourselves of the fallen nature of man, even in the Bible, and what the coming of the Holy Spirit means for us now. There's always sights to see, so let's get rolling. So while we work on getting ahead in the recordings, it will mean that we're getting slowly behind on the updates. But honestly, not that much changes week to week. I keep working on writing, keep forging ahead with that. By the time this episode comes out, I should be very close to being done with a new series I've started. This one's more of a um, supernatural thriller. It's also much more allegorical in nature, but it's been super fun to write and quite a bit shorter. It's going to be closer to 50,000 words. So the cool thing is I was able to finish this. I will be able to finish this draft in you know a couple months time instead of nearly a year. And so you know I'm going to be kind of doing some different writings over the next little bit, still working on book four of the Triumvirus series. For those of you who have been waiting for that to come out and for the series to continue, it will will pick up again. But as I'm working on that, also working on these other shorter books, which is kind of really exciting. It's helping me kind of stay busy and spend a lot of my days writing, uh, a lot of the time of my day, you know, writing books. And so it's really cool being able to do that. This one, um, I'm honestly a little bit glad I was sick last week after Thanksgiving, because I'll be honest, I was struggling with these couple chapters for a while. I was sort of coming up with some things I wanted to talk about, but for some reason I wasn't being like really, really excited about it. And so taking that little bit of a break uh, to talk about Jesus walking on water and that kind of one-off miracle of his gave me a chance to spend a little bit more time in these chapters. And so I do recommend that. You know, if you're trying to study scripture, like don't don't make it as much about like getting through as much of the Bible as you can, especially on the study part. I do, while I'm studying it, also part of my my morning quiet time with God is to just read through the Bible, read through it at least once a year, just to get everything in there, kind of in my head, over and over and over again. And then, you know, the, the study time is more about, you know, focusing in on a verse or a couple of verses and really pulling stuff out. And so if you set yourself a goal of, you know, studying through a whole book, maybe like we did with Genesis or whatever it is. Like if you need a second day with something, even if it's a daily devotional that you're trying to do, like if you don't get much out of it, you can move on. Sometimes, you know, a verse or series of verses or a concept won't really stick with you in your current season. Maybe something will happen to you later on in life that, you know, a verse will suddenly mean much more to you than it does right now. But also if you, you know, if you want to take, take the time, look at it again the next day. I've had, you know, plenty of times where just my mind wasn't in the right space or something like that at a time. And, you know, I was just, whether I was distracted by too many things or just whatever had, whatever had kind of happened, I was off spiritually as it were. Uh, you can call it a sickness of the soul or whatever it is, but feel free to, to take your time, come back to it. And that's what I was able to do here. And so these chapters, there's a lot of just kind of history going on. There is, again, as with all of these you could dive into single verses or, you know, a couple passages and really pull a lot of stuff out, you know, with this kind of higher overhead gloss of everything. Sometimes there can be less that sticks out, but there's still, still some really cool things. So we're going to work our way through this, 
chapters 34 and 35 first, and I'm going to stop for a minute to kind of to make a point, and then we're going to finish with chapter 36, make another point there, and then look forward to next week. So as we open chapter 34, Jacob has made his way at this point back to Shechem. In this story, Jacob arrives, buys some land, lives in Shechem for a time or near it, and one day his daughter is in the town. And a young man of the village, or of the town of Shechem, named Shechem, takes her and rapes her. Now, he maintains throughout the whole story that he's very much in love with her, but it was still obviously something that should not have been done. And so he goes and and he asks his father, Shechem asks his father to get this this girl for him so that he can be married to her. So he does want to like make an honest man of himself, I guess. So they go and they try to convince Jacob to give Dinah to him to have as his wife, and they they promise to pay whatever the bride price is. And Jacob doesn't say anything at first and waits for his sons to come in from the field or tells them what's going on. They are very upset. And so they go and they tell this man's father, if all of the town of Shechem will circumcise themselves, then they will be allowed to intermarry and live together and they will give, you know, they will consent to their sister to marrying this man. So... They wholeheartedly agree, and three days later, when they're still in pain, the sons of Jacob fall on the town and kill all the men, steal the women and children, and take them away. Jacob is not very well pleased by this, and they are forced to move away, and they do. Now, the name Shechem has a couple different meanings to it. It kind of, it mostly means shoulders. It refers to um, especially the area between the shoulders, like kind of the, the base of the neck. And so from that meaning, the town of Shechem is between two mountains. So it's on the shoulders of the mountains, as it were. So that's how it gets its name. But it also can mean consent, as of one consenting to carry a burden, was kind of the, the connection that I could make through studying this word out, that the reason, you know, the same name for shoulder could also mean consent is because you were like someone who's shouldering a burden and doing it willingly. So it can mean consent, but it's kind of fascinating that this name is given to one who did not get consent from the woman before he had his way with her. And the uh, the men seemed, or the, you know, the the son and the father seemed willing to consent to Jacob Israel's judgment to have Dinah as a proper wife. But notice in chapter thirty four, verse twenty three. He, as the father's pitching this idea of them all being circumcised to the men of the town, he adds this bonus saying, won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms and they will settle among us. So they had intended to deal somewhat deceitfully with Jacob and his children and use this event, this taking of Dinah, of Jacob's daughter, as a means for securing the wealth that Jacob had. That did not happen. As it turned out, they were being deceived and they were all killed. So whether they deserved what they got or not, they were certainly not innocent and completely in the right. Then we begin in Genesis 35, where Jacob moves to Bethel. So since he has now become a stench to the people of Shechem and to the, the people living in that area, he moves to Bethel, removes all the foreign gods from his camp when he does so. And there's kind of a curious verse in verse 22 of this chapter. It says, after they'd moved to Bethel, while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. 
Jacob had 12 sons, verse 23, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn, and on and on. And it goes straight into a recounting of Jacob's sons. And so (laughs) we have this moment. Bilhah was the servant given to Rachel, and it was actually Rachel gave Jacob that servant to sleep with her in order to bear offspring way back in the beginning when Leah was having sons and Rachel was not. God had closed Rachel's womb. And so Rachel, to try to gain some respect for herself, gave Jacob her servant instead to have sons through her instead of through Rachel. And now Reuben, firstborn, born of Leah, goes and sleeps with his father's concubine, the mother of two of Reuben's brothers, by the way, Dan and Naphtali. And it merely says, Israel heard of it, and the launch is straight into Jacob had 12 sons. And you would think something that profound (laughs) would bear a little more extrapolation or expansion of like, okay, so what happened then? But from what we see here, one of his daughters is taken and raped by the people of Shechem and Jacob, Israel, does nothing. Reuben sleeps with with his concubine and he does nothing. Now we will find out later things do happen, but I want us to pause here at the end of this chapter and... Remember that most of the Old Testament is history. One of the ideas I see out there in the Christian world sometimes, um, seen it more than once, is trying to explain the Bible to either a non-believer or a new believer and saying something along the lines of, oh, it's, it's like an instruction manual that teaches you how to live. And that can be a very dangerous attitude to have. For new Christians, it can very much lead them astray as they start to try to apply things to their lives that are no longer applicable. And for the non-Christian, it can be very dangerous because of stories like this. They can say, if the Bible is your instruction manual showing you how to live, there's some really messed up things in here done by people who claim to be God's people, who are, who are held up to be men and women who follow God, and yet they're doing these really weird despicable, otherwise evil things that if anyone did them today, especially if a non-Christian did them today, these same Christians who are trying to use this as an instruction manual would say you're going to hell because of what you did. And so again, helpfully remember that most of the Old Testament is history. There is some poetry and song and philosophy as well, but a lot of history. When we read stories like this, even if we hold Jacob as like, okay, by this point, He's gone through all these things. He's been tested and refined through the fire of various trials and seems to be acting in a way that is closer in line with God or an awareness of God than he had previously. It is still not to say he is acting perfectly. And so it's not necessarily to say that one way of living is righteous or not. We should not take from this story of the rape of Dinah and the the reaction of her brothers that, oh, if something bad happens to someone you care about, It is righteous for you to go and deceive the criminal in order to exact your revenge upon them. The fact is simply that at that time where people, especially where people would move through different lands and the power of kings was much more limited in scope, it was very common for justice to be on the shoulders of the family to enact. That there are not necessarily court systems or if there are, they're either terribly corrupt or just really not as swift, we might say. And so that's all that is kind of happening from a you know service perspective. Again, we could dive deep on some of these things and really pull out the will of God. But in these, especially 
some of the ones where they move through the things that happen very quickly, it is enough right now for us to say, okay, that is how the culture was back then. So there's a cultural aspect there, and it's also the history of how God interacted with people through various cultures. He does, through all times, work through the culture that's in place. He himself does not change. His nature does not change. But how he interacts with us can. His creational truths, creational truths are the ways of living and the laws that he has set forth that are based upon his nature. Those things do not change. I want to make that very, very clear. So there are certain rules and laws that are bound by culture. There are many others that are not. And we need to understand that there is a difference between those two and to understand that his goals and purposes are the same as his nature is the same, but his actions are dynamic. We need to finally remember that when we're in the Old Testament, by and large, we are not given the response of a Holy Spirit filled people. That is the biggest difference between Old Testament and New Testament when we're looking at just stories of how things went, that unless it specifically says in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God came upon someone, this happens with Samson, this happens with David, with you know various others, to the extent, I mean, there were craftsmen in Moses' time that the Spirit gave them the ability to do what they did. It was not just a natural ability to craft or create. So aside from those specific instances, these are people who do not have the Holy Spirit and the grace of God inside of them to be able to act with a certain level of righteousness. It was much more about how well they followed the law. The more consistently they followed the law, the easier it would be to do. And so they could work themselves towards a certain amount of righteousness that way. But they don't have, the, they would not have had the tap into the power of the Holy Spirit that Christians today are able to. And so some of the of their responses were limited by that. As much as they might be, you know, God-fearing folk, there are, you can especially read this in Kings and Chronicles, there were many kings of the time that they were well regarded as righteous and godly men, but they still didn't fully turn back to God at a time when the kings fairly consistently turning away from God. There'd suddenly be one who'd turn almost the whole way back to God. He'd be well praised by God himself through the prophets as like, you are doing very, very good things. And there'd still be these little bits where they hadn't quite gotten rid of all the high places and all of the, the shrines and everything. But the extent that they were able to turn away from it, they were praised for that. And that's, again, because of this idea that they would not have had the Holy Spirit at this time necessarily. So all of that bearing in mind as we read these things, as I said, about even someone like Jacob, who ostensibly by this point is you know a, a fairly godly man, he still does really stupid things. And his sons do really stupid things. So moving quickly to Genesis 36, this is one of those interludes where we can tend to just breeze straight through because it is largely a recounting of Esau's descendants. And anytime we come across a genealogy, it can be very easy to just skim through or skip it entirely and get back to the story part, which I understand. <laughs> there are a lot of names. They don't seem to mean a whole lot. And especially in certain books of the Bible and certain chapters of it, it just goes on and on and on. And we don't see the value. We don't know why it's there. And there are a couple reasons why. One of the things I think to remember about this particular 
genealogy is that it, it does not belong to God's chosen people. So this is similar to the recounting of the descendants of Ishmael, where it was there because he came from Abraham, but he was not part of the covenant people. And so here, the same with Esau, because he had come from Isaac, he was still an important man. And he was important because the people especially were important because they lived so close to the Israelites. But the focus is still primarily on God's chosen people from Genesis on through kind of until the book of Acts, where things finally start to shift and be more about the rest of the world than most of the Bible. And there are some who would argue that one of the beliefs I've been starting to hear a bit about is that all of these books of the Bible were actually written while the Israelites were in exile in Babylon, I believe, and that the writer was trying to build kind of a history for these people uh, in order to help themselves stay separate from the rest of the land they were exiled to, to give them kind of an identity as they were starting to come back to Jerusalem, come back to the land of their forefathers. All this was written then. Common belief is that the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses, then you know Joshua was written by Joshua, and other ones were written by various other people. There is starting to be the idea out there that all this was written instead to try to give an identity to a people who had been scattered and were now starting to come back together. May or may not be true. I don't know. Um, I haven't looked that deep into it. I'm fine to believe either one because to me, God wrote all of it regardless. So it kind of doesn't matter which person wrote them. And so part of this could be then because when the Israelites did start coming back from the exile, it was important for them to be able to prove that they were Israelites. And this shows up in either Ezra or Nehemiah or possibly both, where there were those who were coming back who were not able to prove that they were, um, I think it's in Ezra, they were not able to prove that they had actually descended from the Levites, and or especially from Aaron. And so they were not permitted to perform certain priestly functions until, if and until they could prove their heritage. And the same, or their genealogy, and so the same from some of the landowners' perspective, because land was so strongly tied to a family line, if you could not prove that you were of that family line, then you had no right to the land. And so what could be happening here by having this genealogy of Esau, again, remembering that they they were living at this point somewhat close to the Israelites, close to Jacob's descendants. And so they would want to have some start of a record to show that if anyone's tracing their line and it goes into the line of Esau, they should not have the same rights as those whose genealogy went or came from from Jacob, from Israel. And so when we look at this genealogy, a couple things that kind of stand out is that it is separate. It's this single chapter kind of in the middle of Jacob establishing himself in Bethel and what follows after that. And only goes down a couple generations. And so it could be there as an example. Again, we talked about, you know, this, the people who were not of God's chosen people don't carry as much importance and significance as the people who do. And so for the churches today, you can look at this as kind of an example of who you were before Christ is not as important as who you became after. It could be uh, something very pragmatic at the time, again, to kind of 
help the Israelites not intermarry, to not accidentally marry into Esau's descendants, again, not to start losing their, their inheritance. And then also to remember through all of these things we've talked about that in that culture and in that time, foreigners were not permitted in the promised land. Now, they, you know, obviously we know the actual promised land, the Israelites moving into the promised land is not for a long time, not until Exodus. So that's looking forward a little bit. But again, this would have been there if Moses was the one who wrote it, it would have been available to the people coming into Israel the first time, moving into the promised land after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. This would have been available to them to read, to know like, okay, we don't intermarry with these these people because foreigners, I said, are not permitted in the promised land. The promised land was only for God's chosen people. But it can also be a metaphor for us, for God's kingdom, that the only way to inherit property, quote unquote, that is, you know, a place in the land, a place in God's kingdom is through adoption into the people through Christ. There were ways for people to kind of marry their way into this, and that did happen, but only if it was through like complete renunciation of their past life much like Christianity, or should be. When we come to Christ to be his disciple, it is at the abandonment of all of our previous life and stepping into whatever life he has for us. Now, some of what we do may come with us, but that is up to Jesus to decide and not us. And it hearkens us to, in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 talks about, for those who are in Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all this idea of like your identity now is in Christ, period. And so the genealogy you had before, where you came from before, is irrelevant. And one of the things that's really kind of cool to see, I and mean, I've seen it this, you know, this method of storytelling done a few different times for different people. But it'll start out with here is this person who is faithful to God. And because of their faithfulness, this person came to know Christ as well. And that person went and did these different things. And because of their faithfulness to their calling, they brought this other person to God. And that person, through their faithfulness, brought Billy Graham to Christ. And we know, you know, the effect that Billy Graham had on the world. And so this new genealogy of remembering who it was and through whose faithfulness you came to Christ. Um, it might be Christ himself. Uh, it could be that you, know, you had heard enough about it or, you know, you, you sought Jesus himself in a, in a time of desperation and he came to you personally. That is still Christ's faithfulness in dying on the cross that has brought you to him. It could be, you know, an individual who talked to you, who gave some of their lives to you, some of their time, some of their effort. And because of their efforts and because of God's work in you, you were able to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That genealogy is much more important to remember. For me, it was the faithfulness of my mom to raise me in the way, even though I strayed from it for a long time. It was only because of her initial seed and because of God's you know, unwavering faithfulness that I was able to come back and do this today. And so hopefully through this podcast too, and hopefully my faithfulness to what I believe God has called me to, I'm helping you as well. So that's what we have for this week, Genesis 34 through 36. Again, I know I mentioned every time, I'm going to keep mentioning it every time. Read ahead. Next week, we're going to, we're going to be going through a lot. Actually, it's going to be Genesis 37 through 41. We are going to be looking at Joseph. Finally, the man you've possibly all been waiting for, if not all of you, at least some of you have probably 
Been looking forward to Joseph. We're going to buzz through a lot once again, but it's going to be really, really good. I'm, I already have it most of the way scripted. I'm very excited for it. So make sure to, to come back in, tune in next week. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to ko-fi, that's ko-fi.com slash Daniel Didek. There's also a link in the show notes where you can go and make a donation. Everything we receive there will go straight back into the podcast, either funding the subscription to the server where the episodes will be stored live forever, or in upgrading equipment. One of the things we want to do eventually is move into an actual soundproof studio, so you'll be able to help by donating through that Ko-Fi page. If you want to support me more generally, you can buy my books. Links are available on my website, danieldidek.com. And as always, non-financial ways to support are to spread the word about this podcast to your friends and followers. If you've read my books, you can leave reviews and, of course, subscribing to the podcast and listening to each episode sure encourages me. And thank you. Next week, Joseph, good times. Until then, keep the faith and keep it old school. Music